and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking H2O podcast, where every week we explore different stories around water that include safe water projects, trends in the water space, and blue mind. We hope you enjoy listening, and now here's your host, Kevin Sofen. Good day, Responsible World. In today's episode, it's a really exciting conversation with Amy Churchill, the founder of Just One Africa. We're going to learn about the amazing work that they're doing throughout Kenya, from different education programs around sustainability, clean water programs from drilling wells to distributing water filters, how they're measuring this, and how they're showcasing the tangible value they're bringing to the community, and most importantly, what Just One Africa means, and how just one person helping just one person doing just one thing at a time can really go a long way. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rethinking H2O podcast. Today, I'm really honored to sit down with Amy Churchill, the founder and director of operations of Just One Africa. Amy, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So give us a little insight for those who don't know much about you or your organization, about you and a little bit of origins about why this organization started and ultimately what you guys do. Sure. Our name comes from the belief that it takes just one person to make a difference. And so when we named Just One Africa, that it truly is because we believe that that's possible. And it was very true of our story and how we began as an organization. And it continues to remain a very strong theme in all that we do. We also believe that just one person is worth making a difference for. And in our experience, in our initial trip to Kenya in 2012, over spring break, we had chaperoned our kids' youth group trip. We learned a lot about the things that we hear on the news. We maybe have seen in movies or have heard about, you know, humanitarian needs around the world and crises and what that really looks like in a community. But it's quite different when you see it in person and that becomes your own experience and you hear from the people themselves as to how you know, these challenges have impacted their families. And I really reflected as I was hearing these things from the people in the communities we were working alongside and learning from what that would be like if that was my situation, if this was my story, if this was my family, if this was my children. And from that point, action needed to be taken. It wasn't okay for us and for our kids to just learn about some of these challenges and struggles on a very deeper and more personal way. And then to say, well, I'm so sorry, you know, I'll pray for you. I'll, you know, give to this organization. Hopefully they can help you or they'll help somebody. But how can I have a tangible impact on the people that I'm meeting and the challenges that they face? And overwhelmingly, the need was huge and it continues to be, you know, global. But at the same time, it was like, do we throw up our hands and say, well, we can't do anything significant, meaning in mass numbers. So what's the point? Or do we try and do for the person in front of us what we hope somebody would do for us if that was our situation? And so that's really the origin of Just One Africa, investing and getting involved in the life of the one in front of you. I love it. That was how our journey started. And it was centered primarily around sustainability solutions for local leaders who care for vulnerable children as well as clean water solutions, because as much as 
the need for education and for e-commerce and business and, you know, food security and all of these things definitely were in need and, and had possible, you know, opportunities to grow. If you don't have access to safe water and your health is compromised on a daily basis and you're literally are just trying to survive because of waterborne disease, none of those other opportunities will materialize. And the money or the resources invested into pursuing those such as you know, education, would be a total loss. So we start with access to clean water, and we learn about the communities around the local leader that we're partnering with, and we make plans to invest in their vision to see sustainability happen from within. I really like your whole notion around just one, because I think a lot of times people hear climate change or back in the early 2000s when it was Al Gore came out with the whole climate change talk and he was on stage and kind of pointing his finger at everyone saying, you know, this is the biggest problem. But when it's such a big problem, like let's say water in Africa or climate change, it's almost hard to think, well, what can I as one individual do? But right. I think the act, the notion of like just one person trying to help maybe just another person or just by doing one act at a time to help another person, I think allows you to kind of take it in sort of spoonfuls. And there's that other phrase I like where it's like, how do you eat a 600-pound gorilla? It's like, well, one bite at a time. And I think that notion that you guys have instilled amongst your organization in your outreach is really a good way to actually go out and, like you said, do tangible work, not just pray or do a tweet but actually doing something tangible each and every day with your individual actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that are possible to do, but it takes, I believe, first education and awareness about what are the best ways to move forward and to take those steps. I think it's easy or maybe for us in North America to throw money at a problem or to say, oh, I, you know, I gave or I, you know, liked a photo or, you know, tried to use some of our influence that way, but it didn't really maybe take a whole lot of effort. And we don't come away changed as an individual, but we feel like we did our good deed for the day or, you know, we gave to this organization. But what does that really do to our lives? How does that really change who we are? And we hope that the people who give to Just One Africa, who volunteer with us locally, who go on a trip with us to Kenya and see the situations and, and learn about the lives of the people that we're working with will come away as a changed individual. It doesn't matter the dollar amount. It doesn't matter the amount of time that they give, but we really hope that it's a mutual transformational relationship that they have. And I hope that that is the desire of your listeners and those that are wanting to get more involved in tangible ways that they truly do take the time to educate themselves and understand about how organizations are addressing these issues themselves and what part can they play in that? Yeah. So a couple of questions. First, why Kenya and how Kenya? Hmm. Good question. We went because of a prior relationship that we had with a woman in Western Kenya who was caring for many, many children who were either orphaned due to HIV and AIDS crisis. And in Western Kenya, there's a huge population of widows and children because so many of the men have died and not taken medication, the ARVs. And so you have a lot of women that have been left very vulnerable positions oppressed just because of their gender, because they're a widow, and because of their status being HIV positive. And so that's really caused a lot of challenges in that community. And because of prior relationships with this woman and being able to come and learn more in person about what she's doing, it opened our eyes to something that was, yes, happening all over the world, but specifically 
to the woman in front of us and her vision and her dreams to impact and change her community. And she has a huge uphill battle and was doing all that she could with the resources she had. But it was really difficult, one, because of water, the waterborne diseases she was encountering and the, the children's sickness and the women were greatly impeding the progress of anything, really. And so as we visited her in 2012, we began to learn more about this specific community and her vision and the challenges that she was facing. And so that's really how it started. We now are partnering with leaders in southern Kenya, almost to the border of Tanzania, as well as in central Kenya in the Rift Valley. Love it. And so you're talking about these different partnerships and how you've built these grassroots relationships. How are you interfacing with these leaders and maybe these tribal communities and how are you getting them to actually have buy-in and to where it's not like, hey, the, the white man comes in and tells you what to do, but say, hey, no, we're working with you and building the best solution for you and with you and not telling you what to do. Yeah, that's a critical part of our DNA. We are not wanting to ever come across as the white savior or the people who have all the answers or all the resources. And just because we come from a nation that has privilege and power and resources definitely doesn't mean we are suited to be the ones in the front. And we really prefer to take a back seat. We really choose as an organization and as individual leaders to elevate and empower and equip the local leader on the ground because we truly believe in who they are and what they're doing. And that doesn't happen overnight. That is a process too of building relationships and in understanding how to invest, where to invest, when to invest, and really the capacity of that person so you don't end up overwhelming them and undoing all the good that they've been spending their life pouring out to do. So we really build relationships first with those local leaders, understand more through their eyes what they see is possible, what they have seen other organizations do. And we've learned a lot about what their experience has been and what that really looks like, maybe from a social media post aspect to actually tangible results in the field and where things went wrong. So we really try and understand how to not duplicate the wheel of things that have gone wrong. But if we need to reinvent it, then great. But if things have been working well, then we adjust and we go that direction. And oftentimes that means we may approach a problem or a situation or community with a solution, but we pivot in how it's actually implemented because of the specific needs of that community or the leadership or the political nature or the time of year. I mean, like so many things really will change our approach and our timing because of what is best for the community. And I think if that is your goal is what is best for the person in front of you, then you are going to be willing to take a back seat and not have it be about you or about your initial thought, but you're going to be willing to do what's best for the other person. And so that's really how we start is through those relationships with the local leaders and then try and implement whatever they deem as necessary in those steps. And it's a troubleshooting process. It's not a success every time, but it really is important to stay the course. And if you really do believe in what you're doing and partnerships that you've built, you're going to be willing to get knocked down and get back up again and learn from it and not just throw in the towel and be, you know, ready to quit so easily. And I understand why people want to do that because this is not easy work. And when you're working with people and that's your primary focus, not numbers, not dollars, really it's the people that are most important. It's going to be a longer road that you're going to have to dig a bit deeper and be willing to be humbled really and take a back seat to maybe what you're thinking to do because you're in another culture, you're in another country and 
you can't push your own agenda if you really do care about others. And so it is a very humbling process, but it's something that hugely has transformed us as individuals. And I believe our continued approach and how we work in communities and the response that we get from the communities when we work in them. And I really want anybody that volunteers with Just One Africa, our partners in the field, anytime our follow-up teams go out and collect information, that when they see our logo, when they see the people that works with us, that they don't shrink back and have a bad taste in their mouth. But they're like, wow, this organization cares about people first and foremost, and people come out to greet each other. It's not kind of a, you know, go inside and shut the door kind of thing. Don't talk to them. But how can we engage and work together so that way they know the partnership truly is including out of everyone. It's not an exclusive organization where we only work with certain people. We really do care about the individuals that we work with, and especially through our water filter program and their lives and their challenges. And we're not here to solve all the problems or to say we have all the answers, but I believe that you can care about people and sit with them and listen but it doesn't mean necessarily you have to solve everything. Oftentimes they just care about the opportunity to share. Yep. So we try and make that our primary. I love it. And I, I really agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I think that cultural awareness and truly understand what's going on at the grassroots, because I think as maybe you even seen what's going on in Northern Kenya is going to be different than Southern Kenya. And what's going on in Tanzania Very is going to be different than Rwanda from Peru. You know, there's everything is so different and there's all these variables from who, how are they getting water before? What's their perception of what is making them sick or how do they perceive health clinics or how do they perceive, you know, washing their hands? So these are all these different variables that, that take time. And that's why the education part is so important, which, mm-hmm. so I'd love to, for you to elaborate on, you, you talked about some of these sustainability and water initiatives. And I think education is such a big part of that. But if you could tell mm-hmm. us on what you're actually doing from the sustainability and water programs, like what does that look like on the field from what they're actually receiving and then what they're doing sure. and what the response has been? Yeah, that process is one that starts with a lot of communication, a lot of questions, and then we shut up and listen. We be quick. We're not quick to give our ideas or angles of how we think it could be better. Initially, we definitely just listen. It's followed up with lots of questions and back and forth. We do this through email, through WhatsApp, through phone calls, and then in person as well. And that's how we learn about the needs of the partners on the ground and also do follow-up. So we actually leave on the 18th of this month to go back and launch our year-end campaign, which was to build a new home in a safer location for one of our partners that will allow them to establish sustainability projects because of the land that they'll have, access to water, food security, all different kinds of things. And so sometimes it's a big picture project, huge, like a relocation. So that way they're, you know, out of the square box that is kind of keeping them in a vice of not being able to establish their sustainability to something more so that where they already are in a location, they already have the idea. They already have assessed the market needs. For example, a lot of milk in Kenya had skyrocketed the price of milk. And so due to a lot of different things. And so they decided that it would be a good idea that they would love to have a dairy cow project. And one, because it would create jobs. Two, because it would provide milk for the kids at the rescue center and the school that they run. And thirdly, it would allow them to provide income to provide for the needs of the kids that they care for through the sale of milk to the community because of the shortage. So we worked out a plan with them. We learned about the costs 
about all the different needs that they had. And then we went to fundraise for these three dairy cows that they needed. We worked on what kind of breeds are the best, what kind of food do they need, what kind of shelter. I mean, there's always things that we miss because this was our very first dairy cow project on this scale. But between us and our partners, we catch the different things that fall through the cracks because our expertise is in different areas. And while I didn't grow up with dairy cows, our partner, John, did. And so he's able to share things that we would never know. And we're able to think of things that maybe he wouldn't think about, but maybe aren't needed now, but maybe are later. So maybe we're thinking about fundraising so that way this project doesn't end up falling down. We don't just like, here's your cows. And then we're like, oh, shoot, who's going to take care of the cow? Like, oh, you need money to take, you know, hire someone to care for the cow to so it doesn't end up becoming a problem then for them and oftentimes i feel like organizations are quick to rush in provide funding for a sustainability solution quote unquote that's supposed to live on forever and solve the problem but there's so many different angles of that project that maybe you didn't think about that will then actually be a burden to the person you're actually trying to help and so we try and assess the need of that project and then fully fund whatever that might be, even if it's in phases. So that one was able to be implemented mid last year and all of the cows had calves. And so milk started coming and the school next to them actually started buying and they had people coming to the rescue center to buy milk. They had milk for all the kids. They were able to hire someone and take care of the cow. And so I mean, it's a really simple, as we might think, okay, a dairy cow project, big deal. But it really has changed so much of what they see as the next step in their sustainability and providing for kids and also providing jobs for other people in the community. That's going to be a long-term need. Hmm. Um, So dairy cow projects, we have worked on a chicken coop project for a widow group. For our partners, we've done food security projects with agriculture and farming. And that might look like they needed bigger resources for piping. They might have needed tools. They needed a what's called a tuk-tuk. It's basically a motorbike with a truck bed on the back, give or take sizes. And they needed that to transfer fertilizer and materials and manure and crops. And instead of hiring out, they now have this and it's repaid itself many times over. One of the major sustainability projects we worked on with our partners in southern Kenya was actually around water. And primarily, we had been doing water filters as our clean water program. But they kept saying we need access to a lot of water because they had over 200 kids in the school. They had about 40 to 50 kids in a rescue program. And so we were considering how would we go about, you know, walking into this project because we had never dug a well. And it was going to be a significant amount of money, around $30,000 for the digging, for the tanks, for the structure. And they kept saying, please, we need, this is our, this is our major need. And so we were able to raise the funds for it. And I cannot begin to express how incredible this blessing of access to water has been for them. It has truly been a catalyst in their sustainability. They are selling water. They now have people attached to the tanks for increased capacity, more people are signing up. They can't actually service people fast enough because of the draw that this has brought. And it's just income that's able to be provided. And because of the needs they have for these rescue kids, that's helping with staff needs and not helping them to go backwards. It's allowing them to move forwards. They have a savings account for the well and for maintenance needs. And those are all based on the vision and the capacity of those leaders. And so that's why, again, I think the relationships that you establish with people are crucial 
they might not start off with all of those ideas and thoughts, but you can nurture that and provide opportunity for them to be exposed to other people doing things similarly. And it can help encourage their vision where they realize, wow, this is possible and I can learn from this person. And we really try and connect people within Kenya, Kenyans to Kenyans that are doing good work. So that way they can be a resource for each other. And when they have a question, they have somebody that they can reach out to. It's not just us. So around water, around, I mean, the well allowed them to increase their food capacity for growing year round where they didn't have to rely on the rains. And in doing so, they now have stopped buying food from the market, from greens to beans to maize. And it's allowed them instead to be able to internally provide for their needs, as well as provide a lot of jobs and sell the excess to the community. So we have seen how investing into these strategic sustainability projects has been incredibly important for their own capacity building, but it does take a lot of back and forth and willingness to go at a pace that might be different than your own and willing to have things not go right all the time. But if you stay the course and you do the best that you can with what you know, you stay on the field and you get involved in the problems that are in front of you up close and personal, not just from a distance, it's possible to see incredible transformation. I love it. And I think that's one of the most important things where you can go in having one idea. Again, it may have worked in one location, but it's going to take some iterative process and some changes and some hardship. But it seems like over the years, you learn and you can share best practices, and that's really critical. And I think yeah. you, you've shown that, hey, investing into one aspect of a food security issue or some food capacity item with either chickens or cows can lead to all these other positive externalities, such as micro-business to kids mm-hmm. having access to milk, all these little things. And But I think a lot of it stems back to, again, the access to some type of sustainable water system and, and looking at mm-hmm. the positive dominant effect that that brings. And you talked about the the well system, which obviously the well for people who maybe don't know, it's a lot of times water quantity is an issue, but because there's Mm -hmm. no surface water, we have to drill a well to get the water that's in the groundwater. And Mm -hmm. sometimes those wells, they can cost up to around $30,000. We have to drill the water and get it from the ground. And most of the time that water is clean, but tell me about what you do with rainwater, surface water, and you mentioned this, this water filter program. What is that and how does that work and who uses them and how does it work? Sure. Yeah, the water filters that we distribute are primarily in communities that already have access to water. So the majority of our water program is not around drilling wells. It's reaching communities that already have access to water. And that could be because they live next to a stream, a lake, a water pan, which is where they have like a man-made dam where they collect water. But unfortunately, it's highly contaminated because all the local animals use it as well. And in the southern part of Kenya especially, There's elephants, there's giraffe and zebra and cattle and you name it using this water source. And so we also have humans using it and that just creates instant contamination. And so the needs around cleaning water that they already have access to are really, really important. And so the filters are created by a company called Uzima. They also work in Nakuru, Kenya, and they're based here also in Atlanta, Georgia. So we partner with them. It is a hollow fiber membrane technology system, is gravity fed, and there are no replaceable parts up to a million gallons. 
So the longevity and the sustainability of those systems are also very important. There's a lot of different ways to clean water and a lot of different filter systems out there. And how the communities we work with might utilize them, might adopt them, might be willing to own it and use it also was an important factor because if it's too complicated, it's too many parts, if it runs out after a year of use and we have to go around and replace the thousands we had done every year, that's not a very sustainable practice. The dollar amount for us, the follow-up program. And so all of those things we took into consideration and talked about with the leaders in Kenya we were working with and did some pilot programs to learn what was going to be the best solution. And then how do we adjust the training and the education piece um, looks a little bit different depending upon the communities we're in. But this filter system is a point of use system. And as you mentioned with wells, yes, water coming out of the ground can be clean, but not always. Oftentimes it's not, but if it is, and they put it into a container that is a found container, which oftentimes it is, it's a reusable gasoline tank, a chemical container, I've seen it, an oil, cooking oil container, a soap container. Those things aren't clean and they end up having moisture and bacteria inside of them and black mold. And you put clean water into that and you pretty much have gone back to where you started. So that's why we love the point of use systems in the homes. It's very compact and it does an incredible job. Our team uses it every time we're there. We use it and never had a problem. The same technology the U.S. military uses and very large humanitarian organizations around the world use it because it's so effective and so efficient. And in doing that, we're able to go into communities, assess the need through the relationships we have with local leaders and tribal chiefs and elders, as they know the people with the greatest need suffering from the most disease, and we address those needs first. We are not the ones that make the list. We let the local leaders make the list of people, of who that needs to go to, and then we follow suit. We never assume that we know more than they do about their own community, and so we just follow their lead because of the trust we've built through our relationships. Sometimes when we're working in new communities, we do a smaller pilot program so that way we can better assess the needs of the people and also the ownership of the community before we just do a widespread distribution. But we have found it to be very well received and the reduction of waterborne diseases has dropped over 90%, which allows the money that they were using to survive, going to the hospital, being tested, or if they were able to afford typhoid medicine or things for amoebas or cholera, which is deadly, they can then reinvest those funds into school fees for their kids. And 100% of the time when we survey the communities, home to home, hut to hut, what they're doing with that money that they're now not using for medication and hospital visits, 100% of the time it's for education for their children. Secondly, it's for diversifying their food sources and even starting businesses. So It's really awesome to see what access to clean water makes possible, not just on a health aspect, but what that means in terms of quality of life for the family. And just to add on that point, I mean, that's that's remarkable. You mentioned you have some survey and you threw at the 90%. What are you asking in this survey? And then I would love you to reiterate, you're saying that from just not spending money on some of this medicine, people are able to use those funds to then start a business, which then cascades into the other aspects of improved quality of life, correct? Yeah. So the the filter system that we have uh, before we distribute it into the community, we do a large group training 
on hygiene and sanitation. Then once that's done, we have a predetermined list. And once that list is called, they have a registration cost that the people in the program have to pay. And it's roughly $3. It's around 300 shillings. For some people, that's a fortune, especially if you're only earning a dollar or two a day to keep your family alive. It's not easy to save up 300 shillings. For others, it might be something they can just pull out of their pocket, but we want it to be where they also have ownership in this. And that's not just a handout, but they truly are seen as being able to provide and be a part of the solution for themselves. So once they pay their registration fee, they go into a data collection area and we have about 25 questions that we ask them from their name, where they're located, where they collect their water, what kind of container they collect their water in, how many days a month are they missing school, their children, how many days a month are they missing work? How much money are they spending on medication? And that way we're able in our post-survey to compare apples to apples and really get a good understanding of what the impact of the program looks like. And if there are problems, how do we address that within the uniqueness of every community? And so once they finish their data collection, they go into a small group area where they receive their buckets and their filter and they assemble them. It's very simple assembly, but we do a hands-on assembly so that way they can troubleshoot themselves when maybe the nut on the ring around the, the tap comes loose. It's not broken. They just know how to tighten it. But if you've never seen a nut and you've never tightened a tap, you wouldn't know how to fix it. And so you then would be waiting for somebody to come help you. So we're very much about empowering with education and hands-on training. And we have water ambassadors that are in these communities as well, in addition to our follow-up program that help to strengthen the communities from within. And from that data collection that we have from our follow-up teams, we then can compare, and that's where we get all of the information. We do a paper copy, so we have a hard copy, but we also have an app that we use, and then we can upload it and then analyze the data from there. But as I mentioned earlier, the feedback that we have gotten when we're comparing families that were maybe spending 2,000 shillings, roughly $20 a month or so, on medication, what are they now doing with those $20? And so I ask the moms and I say, what do you, how are you spending that? How has that changed your family? And 100% of the time they say, we're paying our school fees. Our kids are in school for the first time or they're never being sent home. Whereas before we weren't ever consistent in being able to pay. So our kids were always finding gaps in their education, which is very difficult as a child. The shame that comes with not being able to afford much less how difficult it is to continue learning when you're missing chunks of your year. And then also the ability to have increased food and diversity and ingredients so that way their health and their strength can improve. And then the business side, which I absolutely love because we're all about empowerment, especially working around um, the needs of women because in a lot of the communities we serve, they're very much oppressed and they're not given an opportunity at all. So we wanna make sure that the works that we're doing are able to really empower um, the communities that we're serving. And so, for example, there was a woman in Voy who's in Southern Kenya on the way to Mombasa. We did a distribution where the dirt, Red dirt turns to sand and it's getting more towards the coastal area. And she had access to water, but it was very, very dirty. And so when we did follow up in her home, she could not stop smiling and she was wearing this beautiful purple shirt. I'll never forget it. And I said, what are you doing with the money? And she said, I want to show you. And she took me outside to from her little house and she had these very basic and simple little huts And she had rabbits and she had geese. And she said, I started a business and I'm selling duck eggs and I'm selling rabbits. And this is what I'm doing. This is how I continue to pay my school fees for my kids. 
and she was beaming. And that's, I think, the true definition of empowerment and instilling dignity and encouraging that. And just in one, others. just one person. Just one person. And even if it was only possible for this woman and her family to let her reach her potential, obviously she has steps ahead of her that she sees that she's going after. But this was a crucial first step. And the water money from life-saving medication is now being invested into education, food, and business that will improve the longevity of their quality and allow the longevity and the quality of their life to continue. I love it. So, and I mean, I think the whole, awesome. the whole focus around empowerment, capacity building, and then from your end of how you've started to really show results, make it very transparent with data, makes it... A lot easier from, a, let's say, a, a donor perspective and someone wanting to get involved. And then really also for them to show accountability on your end that, hey, we're coming in and we want to not only just talk about doing good, but we want to show that we're doing good. And obviously, the pot feeling, you know, how they feel, I think, is is probably one of the best ways of showing that they're doing better, but being able to tangibly show some of these other positive domino externality effects really to me is something that inspires me about your organization. And I think just to, to kind of wrap up here, I, you've, you've given us so much good intel and you're, you're really a, a quality speaker and you have a great aura to you. And I thank you for that. But what are you most excited about? It's January, 2019. The rest of 2019, 2020, 2025, like what, what are you most excited about in your continued growth of Just One Africa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's good to look ahead, but also to make sure that you're grounded where you are. So you're making those practical steps and moving towards those goals. So as we do look ahead, we're excited about this year in particular because we just wrapped up our largest um, year-end campaign to date for the most significant project we've ever done and taken on as an organization. And that is for the relocation of our partners' um, children's home outside of town that will allow their sustainability projects to explode in a great way. So we're really looking forward to seeing that become a reality and get built out in this year. We hope to celebrate Christmas with them in their new home in the end of 2019. As an organization, we are looking to deepen our relationships with our partners and the communities that we serve. I don't think you ever can move past the basics of making sure you're doing that the best that you can. Loving people is not doesn't have to be complicated. And I think just by spending time with them and making a space for them to be who they are really makes a huge difference in the amount of forward motion and steps that you're going to take as an organization and as individuals. We cannot do what we do without our partners. And so that is a really, really crucial step to us as far as building, continuing to build into that relationship. As far as what we're doing here as an organization locally, we do a lot of work with schools around a beads for water program that we have. And that has just exploded with so many different schools wanting to partner with us as it is a hands-on, tangible, measurable way to have young people involved in global solutions and global challenges. And so we're looking to be able to scale that to reach more students and hire somebody to own our schools and our IM1 clubs because that continues to outgrow what I'm able to do as an individual and as a leader, because I'm in Kenya several times a year trying to bounce back and forth. So I'm looking forward to adding on to our Just One Africa team here in the U.S. So that way we can be more present in Kenya longer term, maybe a month or two at a time instead of just taking shorter trips back and forth and looking to see how we can continue to make 
our practices better and better around our water program and expanding more into those communities that have been on a waiting list for a while. In some communities, we have over a thousand people on a waiting list and it's growing daily. It's much, much bigger, I'm sure by now, but it's just a matter of funding and then also being able to be on the ground long enough to be able to implement the programs. And so we don't want to rush into anything and just do it for the sake of doing it and saying, okay, that area is taken care of. But because we do really care about people, we want to make sure that it's done well. And so we're looking at capacity building here in the U.S. and then also capacity building in Kenya. And a training center will be on the horizon for our partners in southern Kenya as a lot of the girls that have been rescued out of FGM and early marriage that they work with and we partner with them on may not be able to totally go to university or complete their education for a variety of reasons. So we're wanting to look at making sure their lives will be able to have sustainability and to be empowered with maybe technical training or skill sets. And so that's going to be a major project coming up here in the next few years. But we're excited about the potential of where we're headed and the amount of people that are seeing the value of investing in the life of one other person through the work that we do. So we have a team trip this summer and we have some new people coming with us, some donors that have been giving for years that are able to finally see and the impact on the ground and meet the people whose lives have been changed. And that's one of the best things that we get to do is introduce others to the beauty of Kenya. I love it. And uh, your phrase on loving others doesn't need to be hard is, is fantastic. And, and then my question was a little bit open-ended, but I think you responded perfectly where it's, it's good to have goals, but really all we can do is do the next right thing right and take it one step at a time, one day at a time. And it seems like you've got some good plans here domestically and responsible as an organization would love to talk more offline on how we can collaborate in some of the school models and engage with some of the kids and the youth, because I think there's a really strong growing movement amongst our youth to want to care more than just what's going on within their own bubble. But we live in a world where we've got these smartphones and everyone's connected and even via WhatsApp and Facebook and Instagram, you know, we, we can talk to kids in Kenya instantly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really powerful connection that we'd like to try and expand on. How can we make that connection between kids here and kids there and make it fun to fundraise and make it fun to show you're doing it and making impact. So let's definitely mm-hmm. talk more about that offline. And, and just to kind of one last kind of call to action, and I'll put this in the show notes. If people want to get in touch with you or organization, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they can look us up online. We have a a website full of information that we'd love for them to read up on and see how we're approaching some of these challenges and providing solutions and building relationships. And they can do that by going to justoneafrica.org. And they can also follow us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. When we're in Kenya here in a few weeks, we will post as much as possible about what we're doing on the ground so people can vicariously live through that experience, seeing the the people and the places and understanding a little bit more of what they're giving, what their voice can do, what leaders there are doing and how they can get involved. There's a contact form on our website, justoneafrica.org. So if they have any questions, they can fill that out or would like more information about our school clubs or coming on a trip. All of that's easily found right there. And we'd love to connect with them and see how we can change the world just one person at a time. Man, said so beautifully. I appreciate it. Well, justoneafrica.org, you heard it. Amy Churchill, founder of Just One Africa. We appreciate your time today and we look forward to the next time. Absolutely. Have an awesome day. Thanks. Thanks.